Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I th today, we are at round, I think, five of You Versus Yourself. We are beginning chapter three. Um, we left off last week's class. We were discussing the root of the uh, dual, dual personality that we, that we experience um, conflicting, conflicting urges, desires, wants, aspirations, ambitions, and goals. It must be that we, as we explained, that it seems it's not just that there are different drives in a human being, but there are two, two beings, two separate entities living inside of us. We are all a composite of two souls. And we have a dark side and we have a bright side, a godly side and a um, I don't know how we will relate to the other side, make it look a little nicer. Uh, it's it sometimes referred to as the animal side, um, or we can look at it as, okay, sometimes the animal can be a little more sophisticated and more human looking. But we have these two sides to us, a godly side and an, a holy side and an unholy soul. And in our earlier parak last week, or really in the last two classes, three classes, we discussed the nature, the essential nature of the two souls, where they come from, where their origins are from. The dark soul, as we learned, comes from a dark place, and it comes from a place that is klipa, that is unholy. And that's why and that is reflected in the nature of that soul, that it is a soul that is interested in unholiness. It doesn't necessarily mean that the soul is going to stay that way. Uh, obviously, or not obviously, but we are taught that the, that soul, that's the whole purpose of life, is that we have to impact that soul, change that soul, and redirect it. But if we do not put in any work and we leave the soul to its own devices, it will gravitate towards unholiness, because it doesn't know any better. Then we have a godly soul, which, as we said earlier, is not only a holy soul, but it's a godly soul, because it's literally a little piece from Hashem. It, 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 it originates in Hashem's mind, just like a child originates in the father's brain. And Hashem is our father, so our soul originates in God's brain, whatever that means. But it originates in Hashem. It's a piece of God from above. And we learned in the previous class that in that all souls are equal. There is no such a thing as a better soul. All souls are equal in this, that they all possess a spark that is utterly divine, and godliness cannot be split into pieces, can't be chopped up into higher and lower. Hashem is simple with utter simplicity. Therefore, all souls are, are, are completely the same in their essence, in their essence. However, as we learned in the previous class, there is various different types of souls, but that is already a secondary stage of the soul. The soul, as it begins its descent into this world, picks up certain features, certain, certain, uh, a certain um, nature, and that nature is, varies from soul to soul. Some souls are not that changed when they descend through the worlds, and they come down in this world in a very, very clean and pure way, and they are as holy down here as they were when they were in heaven, in their original source as part of Hashem. And then there are souls that are changed. As they come down, they become quite different. And that is where we have all the various types of neshamas, high souls and low souls, to the point, to the extreme, that there are souls that are called brain souls, and then there are souls that are called toenail souls. And we understand how, how great and different that is of being the brain or being the toenail. Not just the toe, but being the toenail. So there are souls that are so, so changed, so affected by the descent. But in, it's, it's in essence, all souls are the same. And then we learned last week that not only are the souls equal, but the the, 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 or not only is the soul so godly, but all the changes that happen in the neshama are also determined by God, not by anything that the parents do down here below. Neshamas are godly. The, the decision of which soul comes down into this world is also not up to the parents. There's nothing that a parent or people, humans, can do that could give them access to higher souls or lower souls. This is, 
Hashem's business. It's coming from Hashem. It's, it's godly. Which is very important for us to know because we have to, in Tanya, we get the, uh, a, a, an understanding and appreciation of what kind of awesome respect and what kind of love we ought to have for every single Jew. Understanding that everybody possesses a, a soul, a very, very special soul, and that we really don't know nothing about souls. Because since souls have nothing to do with the merits of the parents, so sometimes a person that might appear to be quite lowly and unimportant can have within his or herself a very, very magnificent neshama. All souls are magnificent in their essence, but some people might have a magnificent developed soul uh, from a very, very high place because, and, and, it's, and it's again independent of what the parents think, do, and act. Okay. So that is a summary, generally, of what we learned till now. Now we're going to begin the third chapter. Over here is when we begin to explore and dissect the nishama. See, in order for us to really gain an appreciation of the nature of our unique nature, we need to, it's not just, it's not enough to know that we have two beings inside of us and know the origins, where they come, and what they are all about, but we need to understand and appreciate how these souls operate. We need to get familiar with the, with the details of what are the powers, what are the talents, what are the abilities of the soul. What is the design and the, and the, and the infant structure the, the, of, of, of the soul? So generally I just want to say is that the soul has an inner, an inner shape, an inner form, and then has an outer form. The inner form of the neshama, the inner, inner form means the soul as the soul, its, 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 uh, its inner design, meaning the manner in which the soul experiences itself for itself. And then there is an outer powers of the soul, which aren't so much about the soul's inner design or structure for itself, but rather they are more about expression. This is the vehicle, the instrument, the manner in which the soul expresses itself. So the outer powers of the neshama are called garments of the soul. And the reason we call them garments of the soul is because a garment is outside of the human being. And a garment is also something that a person needs for the outside. Two things. It is physically outside the person. It's not, it's not part of you. It's something you're garbed in. And it's also something that you need. It's for the sake of the outside. If a person would be alone, he wouldn't need a garment. So the garment is necessary in order for the person to move to the outside. So these are powers, the same are these powers. The powers of expression, those, the garments of the soul, are are outside of the experience of the soul, and they are also powers that are for the sake of the outside. And these are the, 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 the powers of expression. But then there is, what is the nature of the person himself, of who you are expressing? Every expression, expression means you're bringing it, you're revealing it. But what are you revealing? You're revealing something. So you, you can be revealing a song, let's say singing the song. But there is the song, the essential song, and there is the revealing of that song, the singing of that song. Same as also there is an idea, and then there is the thinking of the idea, or the speaking of the idea. So it's the expression of it. So in, in terms of all expression doesn't really have a content of an own. Expression means only taking something from a hidden state and bringing it out into the open. When we are talking about in this chapter, in today's class, the power of the soul, what are the powers of the soul, we're speaking of the content. We're not speaking of its power to express. The power to expression is going to be a discussion in either next class or the following class after that. So what's the, the, the design of the, of the soul? The interesting thing is like this. We have two souls. We have a godly soul and we have an animal soul. In our discussion, we're following the, the, the book, the Tanya, he first dissects the godly soul, and then he moves on to dissect the animal, the animal soul. But the first thing we need to know is that the basic infrastructure of the two souls, the basic, not the specific, they're a little different, they're slightly wired in a different manner, but the basic 
hardwiring of the two souls is the same. And that they, they, they have the same kind of a talents and powers. It's only that one of, in one neshama, in the holy soul, in the godly soul, all these talents are geared, are directed towards holy things. And in the unholy soul, all these talents and all these features are directed and, and relate towards, towards unholiness or towards the self. And as we learned earlier, the true meaning of anything that has to do with self that is unrelated to God is already called unholy. So we have, but base, when, we, when we're going to discuss now the structure, what we really want to decide is what is the infant structure of a human being? Because it's applicable to two souls. Both elements in, in us, both these souls, the human soul is made up, as we learn over here, the human soul is made up of primary of ten powers. Ten powers design the nature of the soul. And this is very, very important to understand before we even discuss the powers. That this is not the soul itself. The soul itself is not, is not uh, made up from ten powers. Because that would mean that the soul would be a... There's two reasons why that can't be so. Number one, that the soul, the soul is not the powers of the soul. These are features and powers that the soul projects, which create the personality of the, of the soul. But it's not the soul itself, for two reasons. First of all, then the soul would be made up from pieces. And for whatever reason we can, we're not going to discuss tonight, it's not, we cannot say about the soul that the soul is made up from pieces. It's a single entity. And it, so that's why it's the first reason why the soul can't be the sum total of its powers. That's number one. Number two is that the powers are in a constant state of fluctuation and change. Meaning, when the person is very young and immature, all these powers are in an immature state. As a person develops and they grow older, there is a change in their, in their soul powers. Two things, they develop, they get more sophisticated and more refined, hopefully, as we grow older. And the second element of them is they sharpened and the like. Also, there is a fluctuation and a change in the powers of the soul that are constantly changing in terms of expansion. Sometimes these soul powers are in a very expansive state and sometimes the soul powers are in a very in a very um, contracted state or a shriveled a shriveled state and that for that reason also it cannot be that this is the soul itself because the soul itself never changes the soul is the is the same it's one power it's a life force for the for no better use for no better term or at least for what i can think of is we're going to refer to the soul as a the neshama is a life force, a singular life force that is within us. And, um, and that life force is the same all the time. It's not to say that at certain days you're more alive and certain days you're less alive. Sometimes you're shriveled and sometimes you're... These are your moods that are changing. This is maybe your mind is changing. But the very life, a person is alive, you're alive, that doesn't change, that doesn't fluctuate. You're equally alive when you're tired, when you're sleepy, or when you're fully awake. Life, you're alive. It also doesn't change when, a, when, a, when, a, when a, a, a one-month-old baby isn't any more or less alive than a 96-year-old person. It doesn't, that doesn't, as long as a person is alive, their soul is residing in them, they're alive. That there is no change. But of course, there's a tremendous change in the personality of the person. In, in, so because those are the soul powers, and the soul powers are affected by life, and they change by life. So this is important to now to uh, address, is that when we're going to discuss the powers, what make up the personality of a human being, the personality of the soul, it's to be understood that this is not the soul itself, but rather these are just the the, the powers of the neshama that give the soul its shape, its unique style. And really what make one person different than the other person. It's not so much in the essential life force. That is in, in generally kind of the same. What is really different, what creates the, the, the personality, the uniqueness of every person as an individual are the manner in which these powers function, the manner, the design of these powers. 
What are these powers? So the powers are, even though we said earlier there are 10 powers, but first, before we get into the details of describing the 10 powers of the soul, first we discuss the, the two general, that the 10 powers of the soul are divided into two general categories. What are the two general categories? Intelligence and emotions. The human soul, one of the, the human soul is definitely an intelligent soul. And the intelligence is a lot of what makes us human. And, and is very, very, very much a great part of our personality, is our intelligence. Right? There is all the knowledge, and as we're going through life, we learn new things. Every day we accumulate, every day we absorb more knowledge and understanding. We study, we learn, and we grow in the things that we know. And um, so that's, that's knowledge. And then everything that, that we do and operate and, 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 all of our, and all of our wheeling and dealings in our life, it all evolves around, around, around our, our, our knowledge and our intelligence, right? So we're, we're, we're attracted to certain things, we pursue certain things, we give up on other things and we change and we move to, on to different things. It's all because of our intelligence as we grow in our understanding. And that, so that gives direction and, and, and guidance to a person in their life. Okay? But a human being is not only an intelligent being, a human being is also an emotional being. The real flavor of a human being is, is connected to their emotions, not to their in intellect. When a person has uh, an, the, 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 the intelligence, right? so that is, intelligence is, is, is one, one aspect of the person. But if we, if we would just be intelligent beings without emotion, then we would be like robots, right? It's the, it's the, it's the emotion. There is a whole, hemis there's a whole sphere of, of, of likes and dislikes, passions, um, stuff that, that we're excited about, that a person is, because that's what emotion means. Emotion means excitement. But there is, there is what excites us, right? So all kinds of excitement. So certain things you're excited about them and you're attracted to them and you love them. Certain things you're irritated by, you're disgusted by, you're repulsed by it, you fear them and the like. Certain things you feel, certain feels compassion towards and the like. Emotions also involve um, um, determination and, and a perseverance and the like. So these are all part of the, the human experience and what give the, which create our personality. And it's these two. It's intellect and the, and the emotion. It's generally something like this. When a person, when we want to get to know someone, when you want to get familiar with another human being, especially when it's a, a, it's one, it's a person that you, you really want to uh, create a relationship with. For instance, if a person is at, in a state of uh, seeking to get married, so you want to find a suitable match. So you're dating someone. So what do you? So in, in order to to find the person that is right for you, that you're going to spend your life and build your home with, so you want to find someone that is a good match for yourself. So you go out and you become familiar. How do you become familiar with that person? You observe them and you also have conversations with them. What is the point of these conversations? You want to get to know them. And what do you want to get to know about them? Okay, so physically, you see if you're attracted to this person or not. So that doesn't take too, too long to decide. But then you want to know if you have any inner identification. If there's something, if you have, have some, so an inner, an inner um, something similar between you and that person, similar interests and the like. So what is it that you want to get to know? So the first thing you want to know about that person is you want to know what is their worldview, what is their philosophy, what is their ideology. So generally we're living in a world as we are, a lot of the headache is kind of taken away from, removed from us. If you're living in a, a Jewish world, in a observant Jewish world, because on a very broad, on, on a broad scale, there is a certain, uh, already an initial a worldview and philosophy that we're all alike because we all ascribe to Judaism and we have the basic tenets of, 
of, of Judaism. We believe in the same morality and the like. Within that, of course, there are so many details and nuances. But in the world, there are so many different people with such extreme philosophies and ideologies. So if you're meeting someone, and so that person, who knows what they believe in? Who knows what they, what's in their mind? So you want to make, get to know what is their, what is their philosophy. So that's, that's number one, right? And then, so again, a very important aspect is to know their religious affiliation. And there, that, that a lot describes their, describes their worldview, if you're a religious person. And then, aside from that, you might want to know their political affiliation. Right? People can be drastically different. Some people have extreme views to the right, and some people have extreme views to the left. If you're going to marry someone, and if these are things that mean to you, right? you, so it doesn't necessarily be that you're very into politics, but you have a general approach to life. So you want to get to know where does that person stand in their, in their political views, or other things, whatever it is that intellectually interests you. So that is a, that tells you, that's a lot of who this person is, is what do they believe in, what do they, what is their mind, what, what is their state of their mind. But then, but that's not enough. The other element is you also want to know what are their, what are their emotional interests, what are their feelings, what are they passionate about, right? So you might be a person who has a strong passion for the arts, the other person might be, might be someone who just doesn't care for the arts. Okay, the question is, how meaningful is it to you? You might say, well, it's not that important for me that my spouse share this interest. Certain things, yeah. But you want to know if this is a, right, if you love nature. And therefore, if you one day want to go on a vacation or you have the ability to spend time together, you would like to do it in the Himalayas. You want to go out to Yosemite or to the other places and see the beauty of nature. And you have another person who just has no interest. So there's no emotional attachment to that. They'd rather go to a amusement park and uh, go, go on a, uh, a twirl upside down on a roller coaster 20 times than being by the most gorgeous sunset. So there's obviously some kind of a disconnect on the emotional level between you and this person. So you want to get to know, familiarize with the person's what they like, things that they don't like, things that they are, they're attracted to, what they're not attracted to, and, and the like. So that is, so we see, once you know their their, their, their mind, their mindset, and their view on life and on important things in life, and their, where they're emotionally at, then you generally know the person. You know who they are. There are still certain character traits that is important to get to know, but it's interesting in Tanya, we have to investigate that. Why, when he discusses the person, he doesn't talk about temperament, at least not in the, in the context of the soul, the temperament of the person is, has a, a, what kind of, you're a very relaxed person or you're a nervous person and, and the like. That is not discussed over here in terms of the inner infrastructure of the soul. What he does talk about is intellect and emotion. That makes up who a person is. Now, our soul um, is, so our soul is made up from an intelligence and from an emotion. Now, more specifically, the intellect and the emotion of the neshamas is specifically divided into ten powers. Okay, we spoke about two general arenas within the soul. The, the knowledge of the soul, the intelligence, and the emotions. But more specifically, there are ten powers. Ten powers of the soul are three intellectual powers. means the intellect that we had discussed before is subdivided into three intellectual powers. And then, um, seven emotional powers. Uh, powers. The three intellectual powers are called wisdom, chachma, which is wisdom, bina, which is understanding, and das is knowledge. The seven emotional powers are chesed, which is um, kindness, gavura, or kindness and love, gavura, which is um, fear, or might, strength, discipline, and fear, teferes, which is beauty, harmony, and um, compassion. Netzach, which is victory, perseverance, determination, um, and the like. Hod, which is translated as glory, but also relates to submission. Um, Yesod, which means foundation and uh, connectivity, bonding. And then Malchus, royalty, revelation. So these are the seven primary emotions. 
Even though when we look at ourselves and we say, wow, I got such wacky emotions. I have so many different kinds of emotions. Every day I have different emotions towards things. And it's the, the, the variation is so rich and so broad. What is it, is it that we're saying over here that there are seven emotions? That is because the emotions are integrated. Each emotion is integrated with the other emotions. The way the emotional structure of the person is that one emotion, the emotions are intertwined one with each other. So therefore, a rich emotion is emotion that is not just singular, but it's an emotion that is, that is complex because there's a few emotions together that create a certain mood and a certain excitement that you're feeling at that time. So being that there are uh, seven emotions and the seven emotions interact with each other, it's for that reason that it provides for the complexity of a human being being able to experience so many different kinds of feelings. However, if we were to take these emotions, any emotion you have, and we were to put it under a spiritual microscope and look into it and see the very, what is it really made out of, we will discover that there are only seven root emotions, which are the root of all the emotional experience within the human being. Three intellectual powers, seven emotional powers. Now the intellect precedes the emotion. Okay? When the order of, of these powers is, first there's three intellectual powers, and then there is the emotional. Because the intellect in the experience, as we, as we experience, as the, as the progress of our experience in our life, and our soul works, is that the emotions follow the intellect. First, there is a certain awareness, a certain understanding of something, and based on that awareness, and based on that understanding, there will be a, 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 a consequential emotion. Why is that? Because what is an emotion? Emotion is an excitement. I mean, you're getting excited about something. But first you have to have an awareness of that something in order for it to perk your emotion. First it has to enter, that something has to enter into your, into your space, into your conscious awareness, so you can, you can have a reaction to it. So, and that's what the job of the intellect. Intellect is just like a window. It's allowing the outside the, to enter into you so that you can become familiar. No, there are so many things that we don't have any emotions about because we just don't know them. So many people that we don't have no feelings to them. Not because they're not great people, not because they're not lovable or they're not fearsome. It's just that you, you, you didn't know that this wonderful, amazing human being lives around the corner from you because you just never met, you never had a conversation. They're not within your, in, in, in your, you don't have the intellectual awareness. If you'll meet them, and you'll read their book, or you'll read their, or, or make some conversation with them, so you'll know about them, then you can get excited. So you first have to have, and that's, so, and then when we get to know people, so what happens is, is there are sometimes someone who is, we meet them, and we don't understand or have a, an appreciation in who that person is, or maybe we do, and we find that this person is, at least for you, doesn't mean that they are that way, but for you they're boring. So it doesn't create any emotional response within you. You don't have any love, you don't have any feeling of desire to get close or desire to go away. It's just, it, next, there is, it doesn't, this person doesn't capture your attention. And then there are people that once you know them, or I'm, just, I'm, I'm talking about people, but it doesn't only relate to people, it's things or any ideas, subjects, whatever it is, phenomenon and entities that enter into you and, and calls for a strong reaction. You get so many things, you're listening to the radio, and there's constantly, the guy's blabbering on and on and on, the news for the half an hour, and you can be doing whatever you're doing or driving, and it doesn't really mean, but suddenly there is certain news that suddenly makes you shrivel in fear or shiver in fear, right? And there is a certain information that gets you wow, gets you very excited. Okay, so, but we see over here that the emotion re an excitement, what is the, the excitement means that that entity, that, that aspect is affecting you, it's impacting you. But it can only affect and impact you if it first enters into your space. Once it's there and you're aware of it, then it can cause, then it can stimulate. An emotion is a stimulate, you've been stimulated towards that thing in some manner. That's why first we have the intellect and then comes the emotion. Now, these um, the Tanya says something really awesome. He says that the reason why the human psyche is designed with these ten powers, and in general, in intelligence and in emotion, is because the soul is reflecting God. And the divine personality, God's 
so to speak, psyche, if we can say that about Hashem, is also one that has an intelligence and an emotion. Now, God forbid to say on Hashem that Hashem has a psyche, and God has any kind of personality, because Hashem is, is beyond all description, beyond all form. Even any abstract form, Hashem doesn't have any form. However, as we spoke last night in the class, that Hashem has decided for the sake of having a relationship with the world that he created to assume a certain personality. He decided, that's what it says in, in Pasach Eliyahu, which is a Kabbalistic um, writing by Eliyahu Anavi, where he says about that Hashem, Antu da pikas asar tikunim. You God, you have projected ten powers. And they are called essence, they are called ten sephiros, which means that God has projected of himself, of his infinite, unknowable, and undescriptive self, his characterless self, he has confined his light and his energy to emerge in a certain personality. What's the personality that Hashem has chosen to emerge and, ref and to project himself and relate to the world through, that is a human personality. What is the human personality? Not fingers and a nose and a head. And, and it, what it means, a human, it, it, means the, it means the spiritual, psychological infrastructure of a human being. What is the infrastructure of a human being? Intellect and emotion. As again, the human being is unique over the animal is that he's an intelligent being. So that is the reason why humans are that way, is because that was the way God emerges in a relationship with the world, is through these, through these ten powers. And that's why we spoke last night, God is referred to many times in the Torah as an Adam, a human being. When, when Yechezkel saw the chariot, he saw on the chariot there was an image of a man. What did he behold? What did he see? He perceived in some way the Eser Sephiros, the ten attributes, which means he recognized that the being that's sitting on the throne is an intelligent being, and the being that's sitting on that throne is also an emotional being. And we find in the Torah many references to God's knowledge. We look at the world, for instance, and we say it in davening every day, the world tells us that God is an intelligent being. All of creation was created with wisdom. Why? Because the world is magnificently, astonishingly, um, synchronized and harmonized with billions and trillions of endless amount of different pieces that have to work with such magical um, um, integration one with each other. That is, so that tells us that the one who created all this must have been super intelligence. The intelligence that we see in the world of God is only a tiny, 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 minuscule, 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 minuscule reflection of God's true intelligence, which is infinite. But we find, and we find in the Torah that the Torah speaks a lot of God as an intelligent being. He knows what's going on. He knows everything that happened, everything that will be. So that's Hashem's mind. Then we also have in the Torah many expressions of God's emotions. Like this week in the parsha, when we have God's being angry at Egypt and he destroys them into the, in the sea and the like. Hashem feels compassion for his people. So we see the emotion, we identify the emotion of compassion. We speak to God every day and we say, Remember your compassion, remember your kindness. So we're relating to Hashem emotions and intellect. Our neshama, our soul, the human being is created in the image of God. In the image of God, so that's why we also have, corresponding to the divine, to the divine um, uh, a pers personality, we too have a personality which is similar, which mirrors and reflects godliness. Not only that, he's saying something much deeper than that, and that is it's not only that we are created similar to God, the reason why we possess the, the same infrastructure, psychological infrastructure that God has, is because our soul is derived from God. It comes from God. And since our neshama, like we learned earlier, our neshama is a child from Hashem, just like a child is born and he is, looks and has the appearance of his father or his mother or both, so too we as Hashem's children have, and really this carries on really not only to the Jewish people, but all human beings who are created in Etzalem Elohim, is, so we have certain features. Now the, but here's features that are godlike, but there is something unique about the Jewish soul. And that is that the Jewish soul, being that the Jewish soul is a 
um, a part of God, as we discussed this in, in last week's class, the difference between the Jewish soul and all other souls. So the ten features that the soul possesses are not only resembling or similar to God, but rather they are godly. The reason our intelligence actually stems from God's intelligence. It's a little piece of Hashem's intelligence. Our emotions come from God's emotions. Of course, our intelligence and our emotions of the neshama is way, 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 way inferior. Our intelligence and emotions are watered down endlessly in comparison to its divine source, but nevertheless, they come and they're derived from Hashem's, from, from the Esser spheros above. And going back to what we had said earlier, just like we cannot say that the soul, another similarity that we see between us, our soul and Hashem, and the source from where our neshama comes from, just like by the human soul, as we spoke earlier, the soul is not made up from ten powers. There is a, 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 a soul, the soul itself is a simple life force that doesn't have any description and any definition. The powers are just manifestations and expressions and projections of the soul. Same as also above, the Esser Sefirot is not God Himself. Hashem is not the Sefirot. The Hashem transcends infinitely the, the Sefirot. What He does is, however, is He projects those Sefirot as a, these are a projection of God, similar to our soul powers, which are, which are a projection of the soul. Okay. Now, um, we will begin to um, examine uh, these, 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 now, oh, one more thing before we do that, and that is what is the relationship between, what is the relationship between the first three powers, the intellectual powers and the emotional powers? We briefly touched upon it earlier that the intellect is what is, is, is responsible and creates, is the source of the emotions. Because as we, we had just discussed, that a person will only have an emotional reaction and an emotional stimulation towards something if they have a certain pre-knowledge of that thing in order to get excited by it. So the relationship is, the type of relationship that is used is that the intellect is called the parents and the emotions are called the children or the, or the offspring. They are the descendants of the intellect. That's why the Kabbalists, when they speak about the divine attributes above, God's intelligence. They refer to the first three attributes, which are called Chachma Bina Das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. They are called the mother attributes. They are called Imois, the mother attributes. And the emotions are called the children. Why are they called the children? Because mother and children, because the mother is the source of the, the child. The mother produces and develops the child. The intellect produces and develops the emotions. Now, the, the, the intellect, we, so we begin with an examination of the three intellectual powers. How does it, why do we have three intellectual powers? What are they? So the first intellectual power, or the first power of the neshama, is called, I just want to mention one more thing before we go into this, also important to note, that just like we said earlier that there are certain elements and powers of the neshama that are not the soul itself, they're external, they're, they're the garments of the soul, which is the manner in which the soul expresses itself, but it's not the content and the makeup and the personality of the soul itself. So too there are other powers in the neshama that precede these ten powers. The, 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 the expression powers of the soul come after the ten powers. And as once you have emotion, once you have intellect, there is a manner in which you express that intellect, a manner in which you express. So the, press, the, the expressing powers are external, they're garments that are on the outside. But then there are powers in the neshama, certain experiences in the soul, that are higher and deeper than these ten powers. Intelligence is not the first experience of the soul. The soul itself, we don't know. The soul is a force of life that is, remains completely, I mean, we don't know it. We don't know what it is. We don't know what the experience of it is. It's, it's, it's at the core essence of, of who we are. All of our experiences emerge from the soul, but we don't have any 
any sense or any feeling of what it is or how it, what, what does it feel like, the soul itself? We don't know, okay? But we know it is, it's a life force. But there are certain experiences and, and it, of the, in the human soul, in our experience, that come before intelligence. Intelligence is not the first experience. And what are these? These are basically two powers, which is not discussed in this chapter of the Tanya. I just want to make note that everybody understands this. And that is that there's a power of, the power of pleasure and the power of desire. Tainug and Ratzin, pleasure and desire. These are powers that are deeper than intelligence. And desire also precedes intelligence. It actually, it actually directs our intelligence because what are the things that a person studies and learns? It's what you have a desire to. So your desire actually conducts and directs and, and, and is, is, is there guiding the intelligence. So it's a, it's a pre... Now the reason why these are not called the nature of the soul is because this is too deep and we have very little control over it. What our essential desires are and what our essential state of pleasure is, what kind of pleasure is pleasurable to our soul is so deep and so in, essential that it's not a place in which we can embellish, expand, develop. What he's speaking about, the 10 powers of the soul, are the powers of the person that through our life get developed, they stretch, they expand, they take on a certain form as we grow in our life. That is the power of the called koiches pinimium, internal powers where we have more control in their development. However, the, these essential powers, they're very, very deep, very close to the essence of the person. It's too deep, it's more related to the subconscious human being than to the conscious. Even though we have glimmers of consciousness of it, pleasure emerges from time to time in a manner that we can feel it and we can sense it, but that's only a tip of the iceberg. It's like the tip of the mountain that's submerged in the sea that's sticking out as an island, but really it goes miles and miles deeper. Same is also with our pleasure and desires. They're rooted very, very, very deeply in the sub, sub, subconscious of the person. And only the outer element of it is emerges on the outside. Okay, now we go back to the 10 powers, the power of, we're beginning with the intelligence. The intelligence is, operates with, is really c constructed of three powers. The three powers are, uh, the first power is called Chachma. Chachma is wisdom. Second power of the soul is called Bina, which is understanding. What is the difference between the Chachma and the Bina? And that is that Chachma is the, the, the experience of um, perceiving an idea, a concept, its initial perception. It's the first glimmer or the first glimpse of an idea. It's the way any knowledge and any information enters into our psyche is it first enters as a point, as a undeveloped point, just a snapshot. It's a, and it's like, it's chachm it's, is related to vision. It's like seeing something. When you see something, initially you don't notice the details yet. You first take in the whole picture, the whole thing as one picture. Once you've seen it, and you've seen the whole thing in its entirety, then you begin to dissect it. And that's the process where the, where, the, where the exercise moves, or the energy moves from the right side of your brain to the left side of the brain. Chachma takes place on the right side of the brain, the power of creativity. It's when you have this crea creative ability to create, to find, to discover a new idea. Whether you're creating a new idea, or whether someone is someone is conveying a new concept and a new idea, or that you just happen to notice something that you haven't noticed before, first it's a flash, it's a point, it's a, it's a little dot. Then the bina is the development, the, the stretching, the, the opening up of it, and to the, 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 the process of, of, um, of dissecting something to see and to examine its details, its particles. That's why Chachma is many times seen as a point and Bina as spatial. Because like in, like in, in, the, in the names, in the God's name, the Chachma is a Yud and the Bina is a He. What is the difference between a Yud and a He? A Yud is a dot and the He is taking that dot and creating space 
developing space from that dot. Because what is a hay? You're really beginning with a point, and then you're stretching the point horizontally, and you're stretching the point vertically. So that's how you get the space of the hay. In our intellectual process, it's the, it's when you first have an idea initially, the whole idea is concentrated in one point. Then you take that idea and you begin to, you, you, you be, the vertical expansion of it means you're bringing it down. And the element of bringing it down means you're taking it from its abstractivity and you're trying to make it more tangible for you to really be able to digest it, for you to really be able to understand it. This power of the Bina process of bringing things down is important for your own understanding, but it is very, very important if you want to give this over and share this concept and this idea to other people. If you want to share it to other people, people that are maybe less abstract thinkers than you are, so what you need to do is you need to take that idea and find how this idea is applicable in more tangible manners, and tangible in a way that the recipient is able to relate to it because it's not, it's, not, it's not so abstract. This is the idea of finding what we call metaphors, a, mush, a muscle and the like. If you're teaching math to little children, you don't want to speak about numbers because kids can't relate to numbers. They don't know what two and three, so what's two plus three? What does two mean and what does three mean? It doesn't mean anything. But if you take that idea and you enclose it in something tangible, and something physical, so you have two uh, fire trucks and three um, fire trucks, okay, now I know what you're talking about. There's something something, something that, I can, that a little child can wrap their mind around, then you can count it and understand what that is. That's called bringing it down. King Solomon has the ultimate power of his, he had the most abstract thinking, and when he would teach, he would give 3,000 metaphors, because for anybody to be able to relate to his, to his mind, he was so deep, so, so abstract. So he would bring it down 3,000 levels, each time giving a metaphor and a metaphor to that metaphor, another metaphor, another metaphor, down, down, down. But in order to do that, that's already, that's, that's stretching it. You're taking the idea, you're stretching it, stretching it downward. And then there is horizontally. Horizontally means you're, you see the details of it. Not just the point, but the details. The details, all the particles, all the parts, all the consequences, all the ramifications of this idea. Once you know something, so what, is, so what comes out? How does this idea affect everything else you know? How, it might change many things, or many, many aspects of what you knew and understood till now. Based on now discovering this new insight, this new idea, it suddenly changes everything you've known, or a lot of things might be impacted by it. So that all has to do with the broadness of a concept, stretching it in the width, seeing all the details of it. And then there is the third dimension. The third dimension is the third dimension is uh, depth, it's th three-dimensional. Depth is, the power of Bina is its analytical skill, is to delve very deep into the point. Initially, when you see the point, you, you have a point, you have something, but you haven't really gone and see the depth. How, so when you're going deeper into something, you start discovering more details and more elements to it. So the understanding, the depth of something actually helps you stretch it in in both directions. First of all, you can bring the idea down lower when you understand it better. As we all know, we're far, far better equipped with teaching something if we really thoroughly know it. That means the more deeper you go into it, the more you're able to bring it down. And also, the more details you see, the more consequences you see of, these idea, of this idea and the like. So that's the concept of Bina. Taking the power, taking the idea from a point and stretching it in all, in all directions. In our, in our soul, okay, now let's take a look for one moment. In our soul, the power, these two powers of Chachma and Bina, is the power in our holy soul, in our godly soul, it's our power to get to know godliness, to get to know Hashem. If we want to be in a relationship with God, the first thing is to get to know Hashem. God Himself, as we said earlier, is unknowable, but we can know God through examining His creation, and we can know godliness, which means Hashem's manifestations throughout the worlds and the like. That is something that we can get to know, and that is conveyed to us through all the writings of Hasidism and the writings of, the, of, of, of Jewish mysticism, and all that relates to us knowledge about God. How does that knowledge operate? 
First you study something, you hear about it for the first time, you get like a, a general idea of what you're talking about. That's the Chachma point. And then we move on to the Bina, really getting to know it and understand it with all the details. One of the ways of, um, you know, later in this chapter we're going to see that the intellect is, co- is called, in general, the experience of the intellect is called or, or related to water. In, in contrast or in comparison to the emotions, emotions are fire. Emotions are excited and heated and intellect is calm. So like water is generally calm and, and fire is, is, is excited. So when we look at, at the manner in which water emerges, we also see that water, see water also, just like the intellect, emerges from a concealed state, right? First you don't know it. And now this idea is emerging. When the idea emerges, right, we said earlier it emerges in two stages. First as a point, as a decimal point, and then it stretches into all the details. The same is when water emerges. Water also comes from a hidden state. It's submerged beneath the earth, deep, deep below. Water comes out, so how does water emerge? Also in two stages. First the Chachma state, and then the Bina state. The Chachma state is the spring. You see water coming from the earth, it comes drop, drop, drop. A little trickle, a little bubbling. You're walking in the forest somewhere, you're on a hike, and you see this little bubbling, it's a spring that's coming from the earth. Then the spring um, creates a little path of water, and you have many, few springs. Those, those, those various different flow, and little droplets of water as they're getting together, form a little streamlet, a little brook, and as it continues on, a few of these or streams come together and suddenly it becomes a river, a raging w- river with tons of water, beginning from a, a small little, little, little drop, drip drop, as it's coming from the, from, from the source. That's the aspect of Chachma is called a Mayon. Mayon means a spring. The Bina is called a Nahar, a river. The difference between the spring and the river is the spring is small, and the river is broad and big. The process of Chachma Bina as intellect moves through our psyche, through our experience, is it emerges first as a point, as an initial barak, a, 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 a flash, just a little, a point, and then it develops into a full-fledged, broad, broad experience, intellectual experience, with depth and, and width and, uh, and the like. Now, um, the... the um, the once we have the 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 understanding and the appreciation of the mind, this is going to evoke and and affect, of course, the emotions. Because once you have an understanding, now you can get an excitement. Until you don't have, as we said earlier, as soon as you don't have the intellectual understanding and grasp and appreciation, then you can't have. There's no emotional. It can't be an emotional excitement towards something because you don't have because you don't have the intelligence. Now, the, 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 um, so here we see an interesting thing. The, the emotions, we're saying, is offspring from the, from, from, from the intellect. When we see children, for instance, a little, a little child, so a little child is, is um, has, we, we can identify emotions already in a, in a little child because there is some kind of an awareness that a little baby has, right? So the little baby is born and it doesn't take a week, two weeks where you can see that the child, the baby, has certain likes and certain dislikes. If you try to stick your finger up the nose or try to like clean their nose, they get very upset and they, after one time doing it, they're very, very clear to let you know that they don't like that, right? And then the child gets very excited when they feel that their mommy is feeding them, because that's good, that's, that, that feels good. So the child is beginning to get a, a, an emotional, you see the emotions already emerging. And as the child grows uh, a little older, again, there is a greater development of the emotions. Again, the child gets scared by strangers, the baby, and gets, feels, you see affection and love to the parent. Right? Now you go and you meet 20 years later, you meet this, this little baby girl, 
She's 20 years old now. She's not, no more a little, a little baby. Here you suddenly take a look at, at this person and the emotions are, look very, very different than when the baby, right? That uh, this girl hasn't put a glass of milk to her mouth already in the last seven years, right? Now, right, there is a whole, a cappuccino is interesting, but not, so what, what happened? There is a change. There is a change in her desires and her wants. She had such a love and such an affection and such a passion or love to her parents. Now, um, her affection and desire and, and love is to other people, to friends and others. And sometimes even at the expense of the relationship with her parents. So what happened? What changed? How did the emotions have such a wild or such a drastic transformation? What changed in the person is their, is their intellect, is their understanding. When you're very, when you're a little baby, so you only know very few little things, and that's where the emotions are at. As the child is growing older, you have an understanding of other, that there are other things that are delightful, there are other things that are pleasurable, and there are other things that are nice. Your taste buds uh, can get excited by other forms of food than just mother's milk. And you have that desire and that want and that kind of a passion for these things. These things are changing as the person is growing older. So we see clearly there's a symmetry between the intellect and the emotions, as the intellect being the parents and the emotions being the children. Now the third function of, but just like a parent, important, just like a parent possesses, just like in order for a child to be born, it's not enough to have one parent. You need to have two parents. It's a father and a mother which will create the child. So too in the intelligence that precedes the emotions, there too we have a father and a mother. The father is the chachma, the chachma is called father, and the bina is called mother. Why is the chachma and bina called father and mother? Because just like in the physical creation of a child, the father creates or contributes to the child by contributing a point, and that is the seminal drop, which is a source of the child. And then the mother takes the child and fully develops and brings out all the, all the organs and all the limbs and all the details till you have a full-fledged human being. Same is also the relationship of Chachma and Bina and how they influence and how they impact the emotions. We said earlier that all intellectual, all the three intellectual elements are sometimes called mothers. Now when we get more specific, we say one is a father and one is a mother. The reason for that is, is because just like with parents and children, the child has more, the mother is, is, is more obviously related to the, to the child in the sense that it's more apparent that a mother is a relationship to the child. Everybody, it's clear that the child was in the mother's womb for nine months and so forth. The father's relationship is a more distant, less apparent relationship. So the same is also in terms of the Chachma and the Bina experience. In order for an emotion to be born, a person, you need, two proce you need, you need the process of a, of, a, of a flash, of an idea, of a concept, and then that concept has to be developed. You have to, in order to get excited about something, it's not just enough to have a quick glimpse on that person or that idea or that phenomenon. The only way to really get excited about something is to really familiarize yourself with the nature of that person or that being or that, or that, or that object. Or you really want to know it well. So it's really the bina that develops the emotions. Just like the mother fully develops the child. But the Bina can't function without a Chachma. Because the Bina has to have something that it evolves. It has a point, which that point is what it develops. So the point is the nucleus of it, and the Bina is the, the space that is formed around that nucleus. And together, between the Chachma and the Bina, we can create emotions. There's a third intellectual power, and the third power of the mind is the power of Das. This power, however, of Das is something that we will better understand after we have a better grasp and understanding of the emotions themselves. And that, as Hashem, we're going to discuss in next class, so we'll understand um, what is the content of the emotions of the godly soul, how do they get excited, what type of excitement does the soul experience, and then will understand the role that the third, the third power of the intellectual power of the soul, which is the Das, 
the role that it plays in the development of the emotion, the essential, pivotal role of that das. But Be'ezus Hashem, we'll leave that into, uh, into next class. And for now, we're going to uh, open up to some questions, if anybody has. Sometimes it takes a lot of a lot of exercise. Not sometimes, always. In other words, the intellect definitely has the power to control emotions. Certain emotions the intellect has instant power over, and it's very easy. These are emo right? Which there are emotions that are more obedient to the mind. Then there are emotions that are already full of developed to a point that they took on a life on their own that they're not so hinged on the mind. They have their own, it's like a child. It's like, the, it's like when your child, children are small, it's easier to control them. Once they become teenagers and they get older, forget it, right? So the same is with emotions. There are certain emotions that they distance themselves from the mind where it's no more about why the reason is not important anymore. Now I just love this thing, I don't even know why. I forgot already the reason why I love it. I have already an, an attraction to that thing. Then the mind has a harder time to get, take possession of that emotion and to to curb it, develop it. But the mind could do that, but that takes work of strengthening the mind's control over the emotion. That's one of the real main features of the exercise of the Tanya, what the Tanya comes to teach us, is how to develop that relationship of mind and heart, and how to be able to um, um, uh, uh, subdue the, or bring, harness the emotions to the intellect. That the intellect could, uh, really direct the guide and mold uh, the emotions. Yes? So first of all, the first of all, these things. Even the child, when they're very, very small, has already a chachma and a bina. In other words, the child has now become aware that I'm being fed by by my mommy. That's an awareness. Then the child feels very comfortable when the mommy is close by, and feels scared and worried when mommy isn't to be seen. So there is the emotion is really backed up by a by 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 an, by an awareness of the mind. It's only, it's a very narrow awareness, a very small awareness, so it's, as the child grows older, there is the awareness expands, and then the emotions are redirected, and sometimes old emotions are completely, um, are completely neglected, and they're not there anymore, and they're replaced by new, more sophisticated emotions. Yes, yeah. We have, here's the thing, pleasure and desire we have far less control over. Uh, what? You know, when a person likes vanilla and the other one likes chocolate, there is not much of a choice in it, you know? It's just some people are vanilla and some people are just chocolate people, right? It's a different kind of a thing. So there's, no, 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 so we have to differentiate between emotions and desires. Emotions, we are, see, the emotions are more reactions to outside stimuli. Desires, we're talking about things that you want that emanate deeply from core desires of a human being. They're not coming from the outside. It's not something that attracted you. It's, 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 it's from within. Right? This is connected to who I am as a person, that I desire this thing. Right? So... Our general... Our general I think a lot of our desires, right, are, are become mixed with emotions. In other words, they become, meaning as the desire is desire, it's very, very unsophisticated. It's very raw, raw, intense. But as it gets filtered through the mind, and the mind produces emotions, so we can have 
um, desires that is partial desire, partial emotion. We could change a lot of the design of it through the mind, but what we're really changing is more the emotional aspects of it, not getting to the, that much to the root desire. But sometimes the root desire can, you know, it, it's not necessarily always, it's not necessarily, the manifestation that we are feeling of it on the surface level is the desire plus a lot of, a lot of decorations, a lot of, so we can remove those things and then we can look at the desire in its purity, then um, I guess we can extract the desire from the way it is manifesting now and find that same fulfillment that the desire is seeking to fulfill in something else. But the desire itself is almost impossible to change. It's just that sometimes if, if you remove the outer layers of it and leave it in its pure, uh, um, in its pure state, it can be very, very different than what the manner in which it's, it's, uh, it's demanding or directing us at the present state. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone have a good week. Shavuot Tov. Thank you.